This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. On a day like this, it sounds like that that could be totally catastrophic. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as usual is my colleague Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra, Ezra is not with us. I think he's in California, California. enjoying better weather than, than Washington. Maybe. I don't know what he's doing. The weather's probably terrible. But I, he, I hear it's terrible. <laughs> he is about to miss what might be the most requested episode of The Weeds that we will that we have ever. Well, you produced. know, Ezra has always brought a lot of pressure to make the show, you know, a little more commercial. Talk more about Donald Trump. <laughs> go for the cheap ratings. Uh, Sell out. Sarah and I, we believe in the weeds. And, you know, we mentioned uh, on a previous episode, accountable care organizations. And I think Sarah said, we should do an episode on that. I think Ezra might have said it. This is kind of an awkward moment. No, no, no. He he would never. He He might. And I thought that it might be too crazy. But the demand literally... Three people emailed me. Seven. Well, if you count people who messaged me on Twitter and emailed me, we're at seven total. People said this is a great idea. Let's let's do it. And I thought yes. So so here's what I know about accountable care organizations because it's not that much, and Sarah's going to have to explain it to me. Years ago, when Obamacare was just a twinkle in Max Baucus's (laughs) eye, I was a writer for Think Progress, which was part of the larger Center for American Progress, which was very amped up about the Affordable Care Act. They loved it. And you would see the kind of like the health wonks. They were they were on a different floor of the building, but you would you would talk to them sometimes about, you know, what what they thought. And and they were very upset that the Congressional Budget Office, which did the the score of how much this would cost, was not crediting the law with driving as much savings and efficiencies in the system as they felt the law deserved. The CBO didn't want to say that highly speculative things were, were going to work. And top on the list of the cap wonks sort of grievance sheet was that they were not getting credit for the accountable care organizations, which they believed would dramatically or at least would meaningfully Mm -hmm. reduce the amount of spending in Medicare by, I think, creating organizations that were going to be accountable. (laughs) Yeah. So let's let's, uh, let's set a definition here. uh, But I never understood from them what what it meant. Okay. Yeah. So let's, let's start with defining what ACOs are. So ACOs, accountable care organizations, are arguably the main way that Obamacare tries to make healthcare more cost efficient. So the idea is the thing you're trying to do is incentivize providers to provide the right care, not too much care, and ultimately, ideally, save money. So if you think about the way your healthcare system works now, um, and I just wrote an essay for Vox about this today, it's very disconnected. You have all these doctors who don't talk to each other. And, you know, when you are a health wonk and you look at that, you think, well, you know, that might lead to repeat testing. Or, you know, if you have doctors who aren't talking to each other, one might order an X-ray and another one might order an X-ray. And they're both looking at X-rays when really all you need is just that one X-ray. And you could see this not only being wasteful, it could be dangerous, where if your cardiologist prescribes some drugs that um, have a dangerous interaction with drugs that your primary care doctor prescribes, that could be very dangerous for the patient. So the idea of the accountable care organization is basically 
basically all, all these doctors should be talking to each other. They should be accountable to one another for a patient's care. So the way that ACOs and Obamacare work is you have some health care organization, and it's really diverse who leads them. It could be a hospital. It could be a group of doctors. Walgreens is leading some ACOs. They're kind of like pharmacy-led ACOs. You get a network that's big enough to care for, to basically provide a spectrum of care for patients. And you get assigned 5,000 patients for Medicare at minimum. And basically, you are given a lump sum of money to take care of those patients. If you are able to do their care for less than that lump sum, you get to keep some of the savings. So, so can, to yeah, yeah, back yeah. it up a minute, okay. the reason it's hard to know yeah. what an ACO is it's like it's new, right? We're, we're accustomed to the idea that a hospital is a kind of a thing. Yeah. And a right. medical practice is a kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And a pharmacy chain right. is a kind of a thing. And the idea is they want to call into being like a new class of institution. Right. Well, and here's one of the most confusing things. So one of the things that make ACOs different from HMOs is you're not stuck in your ACO. One of the things I think think the administration was rightly worried about is some, you know, Medicare patient would, you know, get a letter saying you're in, you know, XYZ ACO and like you can only see the people in the ACO. And they would say, well, I liked it better when I could see all of my doctors. So one of the things that is really different and kind of makes ACOs a bit invisible is that doctors can't say, okay, you can only see people in my ACO because like I need to save money and I need you to see these doctors. So it means that, you know, the folks working in these have to work extra hard to like try and funnel people to the doctors in the ACO, knowing full well that they have choice to go wherever they want. So it's even a bit invisible to the patient who doesn't really know like which doctor is part of an ACO and might not even have sense like if they're one of the, I think it's like 9 million Medicare beneficiaries who's in an ACO so, right now. So in case in case there's young young people ah, listening yes. to the weeds, you know, Bernie bros and, and so forth. <laughs> Let's go back to the 1990s. Let's explain what, what the HMO was, because I think there's a clear relationship, both in terms of the similarity and, as you were saying, the difference, right? So, so HMO stands for Health Maintenance Organization. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at, like, the politics of the 1990s, complaining about HMOs, that was what healthcare politics Consisted of. If there was Twitter, it would have been huge on Twitter complaining about your HMO. But I mean, this is what it, I mean, honestly, I, I do think this is important because younger people who are like fired up about single payer health care don't understand how basic Democratic Party health care proposals were in the 90s. But like the big thing was that they wanted to regulate these HMOs better or differently because people were really mad about them. So an HMO was like an insurance company, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your your employer would say, okay, we want to save money. So we're we're signing up for the HMO instead of the old insurance company. And the HMO was basically it was like a list of doctors you could go to and to get clearance to go mm -hmm. see a specialist, you would have to go through like a gatekeeper doctor? Is yeah, that so usually you'd idea? go, you need a referral. This is like where referrals become super important, where if you want to see the orthopedist, you need your primary care doctor to write you a referral. So essentially it makes primary care doctors the gatekeepers to the rest of the healthcare system. Patients understandably really did not like this. You saw this HMO. So you had really slow healthcare cost growth in this era. So where healthcare costs are kind of growing 3 to 4%, things like look good on that level, but patients do not 
like the system. They don't like that it's hard to see a specialist. So you kind of see like mid-90s, the HMO backlash, and you switch to more like PPO products, which is what probably what a lot of people have now, preferred provider networks where you kind of get a cheaper rate at your in-network doctor, but you can still go out of network. This is more expensive. You have to contract with the really expensive doctors who want to charge a lot of money for standard procedures. And that's kind of where ACOs, if you talk to like health nerds, as I often do, some of them will say, you know, it's just it's just um, an HMO in disguise, that it's, you know, very similar. But I think there are significant differences, but they're ones that make it a lot harder to control costs, to like achieve the goal you're going for, because you're not saying you have to go to these ACO doctors you're putting the onus on the ACO to kind of convince its patients that these are the best doctors that they should stick with. And that's a that's a hard, hard task. The HMO had sort of like a like a two two faces, right? So mm-hmm. like on one side, if you talk to like a insurance company veteran of this era, they'll say like, look, people are getting tons and tons and tons of unnecessary care in the United States. One reason healthcare costs balloon so high is people are getting medical treatments that they don't really need or want. And and you see, you know, low levels of examples of this, like people getting antibiotics for common cold. Mm-hmm. And, and you see high levels of this, people getting tests ordered that don't do anything useful. And they say, look, like the HMO, we were imposing some discipline on the system. And we were saying, look, if you're really sick, and there's actually a treatment that will help you, the doctor will go write you a referral to it. But otherwise, you can't just have sort of specialists running around sort of drumming up business mm-hmm. by getting people to, to come in and be like, oh, my knee hurts. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you're old, you know. But then the other side of it is that the insurance company is a for-profit business. You are forking over to them money every month in premiums, and then it's in their interests for you to not receive healthcare. And so people would always get very suspicious that like there was useful medical care that they were not being allowed to get by their HMO because they were trying to to save money. And that's where these like patients bill of rights type proposals came into the fore. And so it's like you had the rationing that people warn you about in a government controlled system. But the rationing was being done by for profit companies with like CEOs with jets and shareholder meetings and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So so people, it got ugly. I mean, b- both people didn't like it, and, and the political backlash was mm-hmm. was really intense. So now the idea is to achieve some of those gains, but like with a friendlier face. The friendlier face, and also you know one of the ways you kind of see the HMO legacy playing into the ACOs is that there's quality metrics. So let's say Medicare says, okay, you have five thousand patients and you know, let's say like $30 million to care for them, they also have to hit certain quality metrics. The easiest way to, you know, hit your target to, let's say, spend $10 million and get some of that $20 million back is just to, like, say no to everything, just to, like, deny, say, oh, you don't need that, like, don't worry about this. Um, so one of the things that the ACOs have that HMOs traditionally didn't have is a set of quality metrics. And these range um, from certain physical things you can measure, like how many of your diabetics have their diabetes in control. And they you know, include some patient satisfaction metrics, which can be a little controversial in the healthcare world, whether that actually measures better care. But nevertheless, you know, that's something that um, you know, you, Medicare patients are getting more patient satisfaction surveys to say, you know, are your doctors doing a good job? What are your wait times like? So the idea with these quality metrics was to, you know, incentivize more efficient care, but not at the 
cost of like just letting everyone get really sick. So the idea is that with Medicare that they believe or I think we know that there is a lot of health care that is happening that is not genuinely useful to patients, right? right? And the sort of like the the holy grail would be to eliminate that health care mm-hmm. without just sort of arbitrarily lim- – because you see in other parts of the Affordable Care Act, right? I mean you have people in these like high deductible plans mm-hmm. and the idea there is well, you're going to just like use less health services and a lot of people – are going to be okay anyway. But but ACOs is like trying to do that in like a smarter, more finely targeted way. Yeah, and I guess putting the onus more on the on the doctor than and this gets like a little it gets a little complex, you know, what is a hospital and what is an insurance company at right. this point when you have let's say a hospital led ACO that's making that's like looking over this global budget and saying like making decisions about what kind of care they're going to provide. But the kind of idea of the ACO is to put the decisions in the hands of the caregivers to say, okay, like you guys have this money, you're the doctors, you have the medical degrees, like you figure out the best way to provide care. And I think the hope, although, you know, you kind of see mixed results and we can definitely talk about that. The hope is that people will get smarter about things like care coordination, that, you know, they will call other doctors to make sure that they're not doing the same x-rays or they'll check about interactions between different prescriptions or they'll kind of be doing work to get out the redundancies that might happen in healthcare. And, you know, that seems like the easiest way to think about saving money. Like it seems like the lowest hanging fruit is like eliminating the repeat tests, like eliminating things that happen as a result of uncoordinated care. The harder task is using coordinated care to like keep people healthier. The idea that you can use good preventative care to stop medical conditions from progressing to a very unfortunate and expensive kind of, you know, crisis moment. I think that's one of the things ACOs would like to be doing, but that works a lot harder than having an electronic system where it says, hey, someone already ordered that x-ray. The work of actually keeping people healthier is a harder, but you know, also kind of necessary task for these to succeed. So this is like, the idea is like, if you come in to see the doctor and they check you out and it's like, well, okay, you're at risk of heart disease. And, you know, doctors will tell you that mm-hmm. nowadays, but it's like, if the doctor was actually effective in getting you to do stuff that would make you not develop the heart disease, then later on, you would be able to avoid very costly treatments. Right now, in the sort of like traditional like atomized healthcare system, the idea is that when the doctor just kind of informs you, you have these health risks and you should do something about them, that you yourself will be highly motivated Mm -hmm. to not have a heart attack later. But in theory, you could change the financial incentives in the system so that like the whole network of people right. you're working with are motivated to to really try to make that. Right. Happen. Or you hire different kind of people. So and when I've been saying global budget, it's basically that lump sum of money. Mm-hmm. Health wonk terminology you kind of call that a global budget where you have one set of money to cover everything. Usually Medicare works as a fee-for-service. You get paid for a visit. You get paid for a surgery. You get paid for doing a lab test. In kind of a global budget, ideally the ACOs have more flexibility over how they want to spend money. So let's say like this cardiologist or primary care doctor, whoever has a patient, you know, they say you're at risk of heart disease. I am going to set up an appointment with our new case manager who is going to check in on you every week to make sure that you're doing X, Y, and Z or have you monitoring your weight or different, you know, factors. And 
typically in Medicare, that kind of case management isn't reimbursed. Like you don't get money, you just sink money into this employee's salary. In a global budget, you could say, you know what, we want to set aside $40,000 for this case manager and we're going to pay their salary. And we think at the end of the day, that's ultimately going to generate savings. So it creates, you know, more more flexibility. And you definitely, you know, I've talked to ACO systems who kind of have those roles of kind of case managers, nurse managers, social workers that they didn't have before they started this program and generally like seem like a good positive part of the healthcare system. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com weeds. Okay. So now that we have like some sense of what this is, we've had a few years. Does it seem to be working? Is money being saved? Are people healthy? I mean, on one level, it is working. Organizations have said, okay, we want to be ACO. Yes. So Which was not yes. 100% yes. clear it would even happen. So the last count I looked up, and there's a healthcare consulting firm, um, Levitt Partners, that does the best survey of this. They estimate that there's about 477 ACOs in the United States right now. A number of those are Medicare ACOs. A number of them are private insurance companies. So basically private insurers said, oh, that's what Medicare is doing. Maybe we'll try that out. So you have both private and public ACOs. It could be actually be the same exact healthcare system and they're running one ACO for their Medicare patients, one ACO for their private insurance patients. And I think it's an estimated about 9 million Medicare beneficiaries who are in ACOs right now. So definitely, you know, when I think of the different like levels, you could say like, well, is this working? One is participation. And like, yes, there's a lot of participation. The second is, are these saving money? And that's one where, you know, the result, it's just so mixed and all over the board. You just see some that are saving a lot of money. You see some that are losing a lot of money, that they're spending way more than their Medicare target. Mm -hmm. The way most of these arrangements are set up with Medicare is um, most hospitals, unsurprisingly, have been drawn to financial arrangements where if they save money, they get a small share of the savings. But if they lose money, Medicare just takes all the losses. Mm -hmm. They do have an option to take on more risk, but most of them, you know, where you could get even more savings. But then you have to say, okay, if I have losses, I'm going to have to pony up. Most, you know, systems have not been on board for that model. Sure. Medicare is trying to move the program in that direction. But it just really seems right now like super, super variable in whether this is working or not to save money. You could tell any kind of story you want with the data right now. The theory I have after looking over all of it is like there are 
some scale issues where it's possible you have a handful of systems that like figured this out, like they know how to do it, they're saving money. And you really see this. And so the first group of ACOs were called the pioneer ACOs. And they like had some really good results on savings. Or if you look at there's a study, um, we'll put in show notes in the New England Journal of Medicine that kind of looked at ACOs that entered in 2012 versus those that entered in 2013, with the idea being the 2012 ones were like more enthusiastic, they felt like ready earlier. The 2012 ones in their first year saved an average of $144 a patient. The 2013 ones saved an average of $3 a patient. So mm-hmm. like you see, the thing I see when I look at the ACO data is like a handful of systems who are doing this complex thing of managing care really well. And then a lot of other systems that are like taking their best shot at it and are really just like not able to make this very different model of healthcare work. I mean, we see these kind of like scale questions in a lot of public service ranges, right? I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of charter school debates where I think you have a lot of examples of, particularly in states where it's really hard to start a charter school, of some really good ones, but then in states where you make it easy, you know, when you have like lots and lots and lots, it's like the marginal one is often not that great because you have like a number of people who like have a good idea and a good motivation and like want to run these schools or want to work in them and like it's a real thing, but then there's only so many to go around. And like by the same token, right, it's like this could be a great opportunity for a handful of like visionary mm-hmm. healthcare entrepreneurs. But healthcare is this super labor intensive, not highly scalable sort of business where you can't just like copy and paste the best hospital in America yeah. into every every single city. And we're having some trouble like even articulating what is working well in the places that are that are doing really well. It's not like obvious how to repeat the success. Right. And like when you kind of look, one of the things, you know, I've thought about is that you've had systems like this that have been really successful for a number of decades. Like Kaiser Permanente is known as kind of one of these combined insurer hospital systems where, you know, you go into their network, all your care is managed at that place. I think we've talked to them about them before in the show because some people have had their insurance. Many times. Yeah, Many we, times. Yeah, so we, we both had them and, and I believe uh, Panoply employees. Uh, okay. And then like you have like Geisinger Health, which I believe is in Colorado. So you have like a number of like well-known systems who've been doing this for decades. And then you kind of think, you know, well, if this is working for these systems, and it has been since, you know, 1970s, 1980s, why have they not proliferated? And it could be that it's very hard to kind of like do an ACO to box kind of model because so much of what is happening is like very much on the clinician level that you, you know, you have like a high level plan in the C-suite, but you also have doctors and nurses and patients and case managers making all these decisions all the time. And it strikes me that there might be something, you know, unique and hard to replicate about these um, systems that have been very successful. And, you know, the kind of the ACO statistics, those kind of speak to this as well, that you see the best results among the earliest entrants. Although I will say one thing, you know, to keep in mind is you have had, there's this pioneer ACO group that were unsurprisingly the first ACOs. About a third of them, I believe, have dropped out of the program who just said, you know, this is too hard. This is too much work. We want to focus our care elsewhere. So it's not like 
all the early entrants were like, yeah, this is great and like did super well. You've definitely seen for all the signups, you have a number of systems who have dropped out and said, this isn't working for us. When I've talked to them, usually they're participating in some other kind of like incentive program Mm -hmm. with Medicare and like, you know, they just can't manage all these different quality metrics. They've like chosen another one they think is better. So it's not like they're giving up on the idea of trying to improve the quality of care. But, you know, they've looked at the ACO program and said, like, that's not for us. So that's happening. So you have a, a new article out on the uh, the internet website, uh, Vox.com. It's a great um, website. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's, do great uh, journalism. It's data, data journalism, I think. It's about the amount of work that the conventional healthcare system puts onto the patients. You know, you have doctors who, if you are in their office – they will treat you. You have pharmacists who, if they have the medicine and prescription at their desk and you show up, they will hand it to you in exchange for money. But the work, you have to be your own case manager when you have any kind of complicated or chronic healthcare condition. It's on you as the patient or or at other times a loved one of, of the patient to like be in charge of talking to the insurance company, talking to the pharmacists, talking to the different healthcare providers and constantly doing the legwork of making sure that things actually get done and and happen because to an extent it's no one's loss, right? If you mm-hmm. come to the doctor and they do the exam, and they prescribe the right medicine for you, that's their job. Like, they get reimbursed for that. And, like, whether they are helpful in finding you a pharmacy that will actually fill the prescription or not is, like, sort of in their interest, but, like, not not really, right? Everyone, everyone's job is, is defined very narrowly. Mm-hmm. And patients are, are doing it, and it's a pain. And, and it also seems, though, that it's a... It's actually a real driver of of health outcomes. Yeah. So this is something I've thought about a lot more. So I've generally, you know, I'm like 31. I'm like in kind of the – I'm generally in like a young invincible sort of category, a person who doesn't spend a lot of time getting health care. But for the past year, I've had this annoying thing that I've talked about on this podcast before with my foot that just like – will not heal despite seeing a number of doctors and spending months in a walking cast. It just, you know, isn't working. And one of the things, you know, that struck me, though, probably be very obvious to anyone who spent any time managing a chronic condition is just how much time I spend, like, coordinating between different parts of the healthcare system. So just trying to get a copy of an MRI report is, like, an hour too long experience, which, you know, seems a little trivial to complain about. But when you have to do it multiple times a week and you're, like, managing all these different things, and this is just for, like, one specific injury, you know, I'm not, like, you know, many people are managing multiple chronic conditions, like trying to keep diabetes under control and also trying to manage hypertension and like trying to work on multiple things. I have like one specific thing that, you know, I'm highly motivated to fix. And I have like a very flexible job where no one cares if I'm gone for two hours waiting for the doctor. And I'm not in any sort of ACO situation. I'm basically picking all my own doctors, making sure I fill my prescriptions or sometimes like not getting it done in time, emailing a lot with like the medical assistants in one of my doctor's offices. And it's basically me who kind of knows everything that's going on. So, you know, I started thinking, you know, as I was researching this, you know, well, maybe like 
ACOs are kind of the solution to this, you know, because we talk about coordinated care, it's in the name, that wouldn't it be great if there was some, like, case manager working on this? And I had a really interesting conversation with um, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, Victor Montori, who um, does really interesting work. And he, you know, he felt like the ACOs were on the right track. But one of the things he pointed out to me that I hadn't really thought about, you know, you have, I think it's 33 quality metrics that the ACOs are judged on. And most of them are about, are you getting your patients healthier? And then, you know, you kind of call this patient-centered medicine, where we're making sure the patients are doing better, we're making sure everything is working in the patient's health. There's not a single quality metric that has to do with how much time patients are spending managing their own health. He argued, I think it's the right theory. But it's very easy. If that's not one of your metrics, it's super easy just to offload the work onto your patients. That's less work your people have to do. That's less people you have to hire. And you just kind of rely on people being very motivated to fix their own healthcare problems. So he's, you know, kind of been working on this concept that I became interested in of minimally disruptive medicine, where you kind of, one of the things you engineer around is how do we deliver healthcare in a way that's least disruptive to our patients' lives? And it's in some of the ethos of the ACOs, but it's definitely not like one of the things anyone's being measured on. So there's really not a strong incentive for these accountable care organizations to, you know, practice medicine in the way that's least disruptive to their patients. And they kind of essentially get free labor out of patients because you're going to be the person who like really cares about fixing your problem. And you kind of like rely on that motivation people have to achieve these metrics without really keeping track of all the work you're asking them to do. Yeah, although, I mean, one question is, is like, how good are people actually doing this this job, right? I mean, my guess is that you have years of experience covering healthcare. You're very literate. Right. You understand the terms. Are probably a pretty good manager of Sarah Cliff's healthcare case. <laughs> but it seems to me that a lot of people probably aren't. I mean, particularly people in more severe health distress who maybe don't have the background necessarily in the field to like feel like they really have a strong command over the whole thing. And I mean, you just hear all the time on a very low level stories about like people who don't take all of the pills that are prescribed to them or who are like trying to save money in a penny wise, pound foolish way by like stretching their medication rather than than using things correctly. So, I mean, to the extent that that's true, even like without an explicit Right. Make this easier mm -hmm. metric. Organizations that find a way to make it easier mm -hmm. for people to actually comply with their treatment regimes should save a, a bunch of money. Right. So, you, so this is, and this totally makes sense as a counter argument to what kind of Dr. Montori was arguing to me that you should expect if you make healthcare easier, your patients will get healthier. It'll be easier for them to follow their regimen. You can expect some of it to be reflected there. The kind of counterpoint to that is you're still kind of like not really thinking about what you're asking. Like you have doctors who aren't very like cognizant of the requests that they're making to patients. Like it's very, like you were saying, like when a doctor writes me a prescription, they just like hand me a piece of paper. They've given me the prescription and then like I am on my way. And, you know, a lot of times these kind of patients who, you know, aren't aren't taking their medication on time or saving, saving pills, you know, are kind of labeled uncompliant patients who, you know, are not complying mm -hmm. with the doctor's order. And that feels like after reporting this piece and kind of like thinking about these issues, like a real misnomer. Like maybe they're people who have like very inflexible jobs that they have to go to and like the job of going to work like pays them and the job of being a patient does not pay them. One of the things I thought about writing this is I, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me that like 
doctors should be taking over this work. It kind of like circles to a lot of what we've talked about on electronic records and innovation. Like it really seems like a place where a computer should steal a lot of this work. But for some reason, fax machines still seem to be the mode of communication in the medical system. And, you know, I know doctors feel like very overburdened by all the work that they're doing behind the scenes that I'm probably not even seeing. But it seems like there's space for this to be changed. And maybe maybe the ACOs will, will change that. There is some research on kind of patient satisfaction in these, you know, and it seems to be about the same as regular Medicare, where patients, I think there's one survey where patients reported easier access to their primary care doctors if they're in an ACO versus not an ACO. Otherwise, it seems to be about the same. And I think, you know, if the ACOs are saving money and, you know, their quality metrics are the same, that's like a pretty good mark to hit. I guess you could argue like they should be doing even better because they're providing all this coordination. But um I think if they're doing the same services for a lower price, that's like a decent sign of success. Yeah, I mean, that's like the goal on some level. If you can reduce costs without impairing either like the health outcomes or the patient experience, that is definitely a policy win, even if it's kind of a kind of a modest one uh, beyond like uh, pe- people's sort of wild dreams there. Mm-hmm. Something that, that I'm fascinated with about this is simply the quantitative limits on the number of primary care physicians Mm -hmm. that exist in the United States. It it always strikes me that if you go see like a regular doctor, they seem like really busy, like their schedule is really full and they feel like they're working a lot. And then from a patient slash customer perspective, they don't seem like that interested in like new business in the the way that most (laughs) people are, you know, like if if you go in ordinarily to like a service provider, they're like, oh, you know, like they're like excited to have a new client and they like want to make you happy with this. Whereas I've always, at least in in Washington, D.C., I mean, maybe things are different, but the impression I've gotten from almost every doctor that I've ever been to here (laughs) is kind of like easy come, easy go. You know, like they don't really care. Like their schedule's full, like always. If you call them and you like want to get an appointment, they're like, well, I'll do you this favor of like letting you come see me for money. And I wonder to what extent that kind of just like persistent scarcity of primary care physicians drives some of this, that like they are shuffling people in and out pretty quickly to like get the billing. I mean, they have neither the time nor the incentive to like really put the work in mm-hmm. on some of this stuff. I mean, not just personally, but like as an office, right? That like a lot of the assistants in these offices are not super helpful. And not, I think, because they're bad people, because it's it just somehow seems to be a business where like making people feel taken care of is like not that important to the success of the endeavor mm-hmm. in a way that's a little odd. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you actually see this on like an even higher level on specialty care where you have like all this demand. And you the other day, you know, I was in the doctor's office, you know, I waited 90 minutes to see my doctor. And what one does when one waits 90 minutes is complains about it. On Twitter, you know, I was like, couldn't they at least just, like, call me and be like, he's running an hour late, just, like, come an hour later? And they were like, well, why do they care? Like, if you don't show up, they'll just, like, fill you with another patient. They are in demand, so it doesn't really matter if, like, I'm upset about my weight. They will just have someone else. And, like, this waiting room was full of people, just all all waiting there. So, you know, it seemed like good anecdotal evidence for that theory. You know, I think a lot of what motivated the changes in the ACA and, you know, ACOs are kind of like this kind of feeling of patience. Like, you know, I'm just like, 
there and they get paid for seeing me. So like they try and see me as quickly as possible and they kick me out the door. And the idea of ACOs is to really like change that experience to actually make it worth the provider's while to keep you healthy. And if they're going to be if you're going to be more comfortable coming in when you have a healthcare problem, if you're going to be um, more compliant because you actually like your doctor, that all of a sudden becomes like the wise financial thing to do. But the way that medicine generally is practiced, they are just paid for seeing doctors are paid for seeing just as many patients as they can. So you end up with these like super crammed, rushed feeling schedules. But that's kind of the idea of delivery system reform, which is kind of a fancy way of saying changing the way we pay for healthcare and really something Obama's healthcare legacy often, you know, gets tied up in the insurance expansion, but there's also been as the ACA this really big movement towards kind of pay for quality healthcare. The administration set a goal recently of moving the healthcare system to 50% pay for performance by 2018 and 30% to 2016, which they've already hit. It was supposed to be by the end of the year. And in 2011, there was none of this. Like we started at zero, we're at 30% now, hope of getting to 50% in the Trump or Clinton administration. So they really have been trying to change these payment methods. And it really is a big part of kind of the Obama, Obama administration's health legacy that doesn't get as much attention. And, you know, ideally is addressing this exact sort of problem. We're still seeing if it's, if it's going to work. All right. Let's talk about something even nerdier. Oh man, we're going so far in the weeds. This is this is the controversy of a of a week. Last week <laughs> we talked about what I had thought might be the nerdiest thing of all. Some exciting new Swedish administrative data, which you gotta listen to the episode. It it was hot. Hot data. No, and it was. It really was because this is relevant. You know, it was a paper whose whose like conclusion was kind of interesting. It was about if a a pregnant woman has like a relative who dies, this has a noticeable impact on on the baby's sort of later use of of certain mental health prescription drugs. But what was fascinating about it was actually the data set, which was unusual, and it was a a clever. There was just a lot of good record keeping in Sweden that let them really match the Swedes in the record keeping. Yeah, I mean it I'm going to go deeper on, on administrative data one day because uh, uh, Erica Groschen at the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics she's she's got some big ideas on this that that I I would love to We're going to go deeper right now. That though. I would I would love to bring to light. But the interesting thing is that after we went to air with our episode we found that there was actually a controversy about this paper. Available on RetractionWatch.com, a a website that I did not know existed. They do great work. What what do they do? They kind of like look out for papers that are being retracted from journals, kind of keeping an eye on a lot of the unfortunate fraud that happens in science. So often a lot of science research is what they're monitoring. But they picked up a hot tip on the, um, well, the somewhat um, obscure world of um, econ job rumors, a blog that I've learned from my economist fiance is frequented by um, many economists across the U.S. as a cesspool of gossip and rumor trading. And so what, what they found here is that Essentially, this paper, it omitted citations that would have undermined the paper's claims to novelty and contributions to the field, right? Yes. What essentially arises on econ job rumors and then is grown into a bigger story on Retraction Watch is that there were two papers, I think one from 1978 and one from 2011, that used pretty similar 
data sets and came to pretty similar conclusions. And these papers were kind of nowhere to be found in the citations of the initial um, version of the NBER paper that we talked about last week. It seems like since this was brought to the author's attention, they have added in a paragraph, they've added in citations. They have said, you know, we didn't see these when we were doing our research. We still believe we add novel findings, um, X, Y, and Z, to the research. Other economists, however, have cried foul, saying, if you were so in the weeds of Swedish administrative data, how could you possibly miss this research? You know, it was... And, you know, I think a lot of the blame and criticism is going towards the editors of these paper. This paper, you know, ran in... It was published by the National Bureau of Economic... Oh, sorry, shoot, I'm messing up the NBR. National Bureau of Economic, economic research. research. And also the American Economic Review. So, you know, you kind of see... Some economists saying, you know, this really reflects poorly on the reviewers, on the journal editors who, you know, should have been the ones to say, aha, this this is not as new as you guys think it is. Yeah. And so so the main thing here, because it feels weird to talk about it, but I mean, honestly, this podcast is probably one of the most prominent places in which this research was picked up or discussed. And the dispute here, to be clear, is not about the conclusions no. of the paper. It's about the originality of the research. Right. So that's just why, in particular, like... I feel the need to to correct the record and this paper that we that we discussed was largely duplicating work that was done in 1978 by Mati O. Hutinen and Pekka Niskanen who uh, sound like Finnish people who may well have uh, access to Nordic administrative data and also to a 2011 paper by Quetzal A. Class. Credit where due to the people who were pioneers in this. If you look at the footnotes that have been added, they say, for example, that the statistical approach that the 1978 paper wrote suffers from endogeneity concerns, which is a you know statistical quibble. The reason this seems striking, to, to <laughs> phrase it in this way, is that their conclusion does not differ from the 1978 conclusion. And it doesn't seem like there had been some raging controversy over the 1978 paper because sometimes there is, right? Sometimes a paper will come out in the late 70s. It'll be interesting. It'll have an interesting conclusion. But then some people will raise a methodological concern about it. They'll say, oh, there's an endogeneity problem with this statistical technique. So then you'll do a new paper looking at the same data but with a slightly different angle that addresses that concern. And you'll say, no, they were right after all. And that's like a contribution to a growing literature. We've talked about it before. There's like a million minimum wage studies that often look at similar things, but they're taking new statistical approaches. And that's like a, a progressive debate in the literature. And so you see citations and there's a reason why similar research is happening again and again and again that's a little bit different because there's like an ongoing program here. In the case of this paper, what's fishy about it is that that's not really – the case. What was interesting about this paper was it was like, hey, here's this data set that we can analyze. But it turns out that other people had already kind of done the, hey, here's this data set that we can analyze paper. No one, as far as I know, is disputing the analysis. No. So there isn't really a like an ongoing debate to contribute to here by doing a slightly different take on it. I mean, on the other hand, like it's good for the world. I had not seen this right. 1978 paper. I did see the new one. We talked about it. I think it's interesting. It changes how you think about things a little bit, but it's definitely bad manners. Mm -hmm. And I, mean, I think it speaks to some of the kind of challenges in academic publishing. And, you know, some of our coworkers, Julia Belouz and Brian Resnick do really interesting work on this, where 
there's such a push towards originality that like you have to come up with something like super cool and interesting, kind of more so than um, replicability, showing that someone else's findings, you could find them too. Because when you try and replicate a lot of um, when you try and replicate a lot of research, and my understanding is in psychology, this is an especially acute problem. Is that sometimes you just can't. Sometimes you know a study that kind of like made a splash in the media. Someone else tries to do the same thing and can't do it. So you know, in a way. Definitely the citations should have been there, but there actually is value in just like replicating research. If it's something as important as like understanding the relationship between prenatal stress and future health harms, I could totally see saying, you know, we ran a similar analysis, find similar findings, like this really brings more gravity to these conclusions. However, they probably wouldn't have gotten into AER if they had showed up and said, hey, we did the same work that someone else did, even though for the scientific community, there's a lot of value in replicability. So it's a hard problem for academic publishing. The way you're going to kind of make a splash in the media, I would like to think Vox is like a little less guilty of this with, you know, Julia's like our health reporter is a very conscientious health reporter who likes to take a long view of research. But often the studies that are going to get the most coverage are the ones that kind of say something like totally new and different from the body of research. So the incentives of research become a little bit divorced from what we would want of like a really rigorous scientific discovery process. Well, and this is something we think about. I think at Vox we have made some some strides in this. But just a general question in the media is like why are we always so interested in what's new, mm-hmm. right? When like we we talked about it, it was this like a, a quote unquote new <laughs> analysis. But the children who were in this study were born a long time ago, one way or another. But it was the alleged newness of the paper is like how it got on the front page of the NBER website, Mm -hmm. which is why I saw it. And then that's why I wrote about it. Like, I would say I didn't get us talking about it Mm -hmm. because it was new. But had it not been new, I wouldn't have seen it. And had I not seen it, we wouldn't have talked about it on the podcast. And like, Wonkblog also wrote about this paper. I mean, because it was on the front page of this website. I mean, an obscure Mm -hmm. website. Not an obscure website. (laughs) But but still a website. The world is full of knowledge that just because it doesn't happen to be on the front page of Mm -hmm. NBER or SSRN on any given day, doesn't happen to be a blog post written about it. So it's like not ricocheting around. And what we really struggle with to like write an article about is like, how do you be like, new study slightly reinforces <laughs> my confidence that something that other things had also shown is still true, right? That's like a bad... But it's also the exact research you, you, you want, right? Like if there's like a big finding, you want to be able to show like, oh, it wasn't this one researcher doing something weird in their own lab or doing something you know, that you're not able to replicate. You actually do want those studies that reproduce other people's findings, but no one's going to fund those studies. Because, you know, if you're going for a grant to say, hey, I want to do this thing the other researcher did, like, it's going to be like tough luck and even tougher luck getting that published anywhere. Right. Just say, like, we want to do this this study that we saw from Sweden. We want to do the exact same study, but we want to do it for Norway. Right. Right. It's like, it's not that interesting. But there's actually value in but, it. But there's, yes, there would be enormous value in actually going through <laughs> finding a handful of the sort of most intriguing small studies and just trying to do as close as you can to that same thing, but slightly different Mm -hmm. to actually see if it holds up or not, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're getting good at generating 
dissertations and new journal articles and then new like wonky news stories about journal articles. (laughs) But we're not necessarily generating like solid knowledge by having everything be as different as possible from previous studies. And the incentives are defined as different as possible. The incentives are like to not specifically to not replicate. Yeah. It's like how can I by – studying a similar topic Mm -hmm. in a totally different way, reach a contradictory (laughs) conclusion, right? right? Like, that's what you really want to do. It's like the hot take machine of um, of, of academic Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I I think it's it's, it's unquestionably true. Like, that's that's what you get. And then it's very, it makes it hard to say, like, what have we actually learned as Mm -hmm. a society about about how things work when people don't don't try hard enough to to replicate? No. Swedish administrative data, who knew what controversy it could beget? Well, is it is it time to get into another ideally less controversial research paper of the week? Absolutely. Absolutely. This was an interesting, I think, not that, you know, methodologically contentious uh, study <laughs> that uh, the um, Economic Innovation Group put out. And they just kind of looked pretty casually at the, the geography of the current economic recovery in the United States um, compared to the first four years of of the last few growth expansions. And, you know, one thing they show is just overall, it's been a less robust economic recovery. We've had fewer new um, establishments. That's like a physical location at which people work and fewer new jobs created than you saw. Um, We kind of knew that. I mean, it was clearly going to be the case. The economy has grown less strongly. There's been less overall job creation. So also, obviously, fewer new establishments. What they show is that the geographic pattern is is really, really different. That in the past two recoveries, we saw small towns add new establishments, small and medium-sized towns. In the current one, the smallest counties, the lowest population counties, to be clear, have actually seen a continued loss of establishments, whereas the biggest, highest population places have seen the most robust growth. And there's like the chart is like a little stepladder, right? Mm-hmm. Smallest counties shrinking, medium-sized a little, big counties a lot. And in terms of overall job growth, you got a, a basically similar kind of story where it used to be that places with a low population base saw just in percentage terms the biggest increase. They were, you know, growing fast when, when people were growing. And the most recent one, that hasn't been the case. Small, low population counties have had added jobs at a very, very low rate. High population counties have grown at a, at a pretty robust rate, um, but there's there's relatively few of them. So we've especially seen growth in Brooklyn, in Miami-Dade, in uh, San Francisco, um, you know, a, a handful of sort of big city places and not much like out there in the, the vast yonder of the country. And it's just important to recognize, like, that is a change. I saw some people look at just, like, the map and be like, well, that's where people live, which is true. But those were also big cities So you ago. you think a lot about urban development and um, all these sort of issues. What's different about this recovery? Like, why do you think we're seeing this particular pattern this time around? So I, I think a few different things are, are going on. One is that you have the structural decline of physical goods retail. More and more Amazon type things is is how people are are shopping, and you're not necessarily seeing physical stores like vanish. There have been some mall closures, things like that, but people aren't building new ones at the kind of rate that they used to. It used to be just taken for granted that like if the economy is growing, that means we're going to need more stores. 
stores. And stores by their nature are very geographically scattered. And like the big city already has stores. And so it's on the fringe where you're going to add new ones. People are not adding it at that same rate. A related point is that because we specifically had so much of a crisis in the house building industry – People are not adding new new homes at the rate that they used to. And that, again, used to be a, like a high growth area for, for low population kinds of places, right? Sprawl, build, build new exurbs. And we've seen very, very, very little home building over, over the past few years. But then the last factor is that you see this in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. But the economy just seems to have shifted mm-hmm. to put more emphasis on the sort of hottest big city hubs, right? If you think about where there's dynamism, I mean, it's technology startups are in big cities, but also restaurants and nightlife and entertainment, food service and hospitality Mm -hmm. in the like official government classification sectors have been growing a lot. People ask like, you know, like where will the jobs come Mm -hmm. from? You know, whatever, whatever. Like that's what people want to do with their spare time and and their spare money is like find places to eat, go stay in hotels, things like that. And those are very like central city focused Mm -hmm. kind of things. But so what's striking to me is that not only do you see this sort of shift away from smaller population centers to big city centers, but the big cities are not growing that fast either. It's like Mostly just been bad news, mm-hmm. right? And like an overall like decline in, in dynamism and growth. Like that's what's really bad about it. If what happened was was that like small towns were doing poorly, but big cities were having like an insane boom, the likes of which we'd never seen, you'd say like, well, maybe too bad for small towns. <laughs> yeah. But I think the disparity matters, right? And there's something one of our coworkers, Tim Lee, wrote about where – I would guess most people setting policy are those living in big cities who kind of look around at them and think like, eh, like it's not great, but it's not terrible. But kind of it, it seems like it changes the perception of like what the recovery looks like in like ways that could potentially matter for like how we think about what happens kind of next and whatever policies we set. Yeah, and I think especially the media, right? So that. One of the industries that has become more concentrated in a handful of big cities is the media, right? There is much, much less employment Mm -hmm. and much less audience for sort of regionally based news sources and much, much more concentration of jobs in New York, Washington, Los Angeles, to an extent San Francisco. And those are places that not only have relatively robust labor markets for media people, but just in general are seeing growth and places opening up and and things like that. So when you look around, you're looking at a place where it's not that people living in New York don't see that there are economic challenges, but they tend to be very focused on things like housing affordability, which is like a big, big problem for people living in giant coastal cities. And we talked about before how the media is really obsessed with gentrification because there's a lot of gentrification in these big coastal cities, whereas like Midwestern central cities continue to just like empty out, right? And just like they're losing population, they're losing jobs. And it's a it's both a more severe set of economic problems are afflicting smaller towns, smaller communities. And they're also different, both in terms of your overall emotional state, a little bit skewed, and then specifically in what you're paying attention to. That like a typical community's problem is like a bunch of places closed during the recession. Mm-hmm. 
and a lot of them just nothing nothing at all has opened in those spots, mm-hmm. right? It's just vacant and, and nothing's going on. Whereas if you're looking at a, like a large city, you're annoyed about the giant condo building mm-hmm. that yeah, is opening. Yeah, or, or like, you know, like stores that used to ser- – I've read a lot of articles about – People, longtime residents of the Mission District in San Francisco who are upset that they themselves are maybe working class mm-hmm. people living in rent-stabilized apartments, but they used to go to like the barber here or mm-hmm. the taqueria there, and those places are closing and they're being replaced by new, much more expensive places mm-hmm. that cater to the yuppies living in, in whatever. And not to say like I, I feel bad for those people, <laughs> but that is a person living in San Francisco – looking for an economic problem afflicting a working class person Mm -hmm. living in San Francisco, finding a real problem that is affecting like a a, a genuine, you know, it's it's not just like privileged people whining, right? People are finding real economic struggles of struggling people, but they turn out to be very idiosyncratic, Mm -hmm. right? And not reflective of the kinds of problems that you are seeing in like mainstream communities, which is just a sort of general slow down. If you look statistically, at this point, job losses are occurring at a very low level. Businesses are not failing. People are not getting laid off. But there's much much less creation of new jobs and creation of new companies. People are not moving as much. Like, all the whole like metabolism of the American economy seems to have like slowed to to a kind of crawl, and that's not evident in the biggest cities, which have always been the fastest moving, most dynamic places, and seem to be plugging along at like a kind of normal level. So it's leading people to sort of miss this this big story. Well, now they've heard it on the weeds. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer uh, AC Valdez back for back for this week. No thanks to Ezra. Yeah. And uh, maybe you'll know, show up next. Week. Yeah, maybe so. And you should rate us on iTunes. You should yeah. review us. You should talk about how much, how awesome Swedish administrative data is. Share with your friends. Do your, your own family. studies. Yes, some replicate. Repli- create some replicable replicate data. Replicate and, and tell us. Um, no, really. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week.